Well, good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Let me encourage you to find a seat if you haven't yet, and uh, let me welcome you. We're delighted that you've come to be with us today. We come here to worship the Lord. Uh, if you're visiting with us, my name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here, and it's great to welcome friends, old and new, to come and share with us today. Um, my job is uh, to introduce you uh, to someone important, and uh, that is not me, uh, that is not any of our elders or deacons, as lovely as they all are, but it's my job to introduce you to the most important person of all, to Jesus Christ. And even if you're here today and you have already met Him, the most valuable thing for you and me to do today is to be reintroduced to Jesus Christ, to hear about Him, and crucially, to hear from Him. And that's what I pray will be our experience today. And just think how wonderful a thing it is to be introduced to Jesus Christ. I'm going to read some verses from the New Testament which speak about just who this Jesus is. You would find these words in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is who we come to have an encounter with this morning the one who is the exact representation of God, the one who has been exalted to the highest place, far above even the angels. Well, I'm pleased to invite Nathan to come and uh, do our Bible reading for us this morning. You'll find it in Acts chapter 2. Um, it is a long reading, but it is very exciting. So be braced for that. Nathan, thanks a lot. Um, yeah, so Acts 2 verses 1 to 41. I'm reading the NIV. So, when the day of the Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't, though, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Peter addresses the crowd. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all, who, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, and you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledged and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you, will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made me known to the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But the prophet, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, and he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, be, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call, Lord, God, Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warmed them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. 
Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Thank you. And if you think Peter's sermon was long, wait till you hear mine. When, when, uh, when I was a kid, if someone asked you wanted, what you wanted to be when you grew up, there were some pretty standard answers. You know, you either wanted to be an astronaut or, uh, or a pilot or a policeman or whatever. You know, pretty standard answers. But I think we live in, in a generation which is unique where people, kids will sometimes answer that question by saying, oh, I want to be famous. I want to be a celebrity. Because we live in this strange world where compared to several decades ago where people became famous because they achieved something, could do something. Perhaps they had a special talent. Perhaps they were good at speaking up for a specific cause. But in our age, there are a large number of celebrities who have no discernible talent or accomplishments to their name at all. Indeed, people long to be famous, long to become a household name, and yet so often we find people who rise to that position. It's as if they get into the spotlight, they step forward to the microphone, and they have nothing to say. This is really a metaphor for great swathes of the Christian church today as well. In our society, churches so often claim that they should have a prominent place in people's lives. They should be at the heart of a healthy society. They should be respected But the tragedy is that for so many who have given the church their attention, they found that it has nothing to say. The approach of many churches in Scotland today is simply to reflect back to our society what they already think, what they already believe. It's a place where you can meet people. It's a place where you might even feel good about yourself, but not much beyond that. And I suppose that's the question I want to put into your heads as we start into this chapter of Acts. When the church steps into the the spotlight, steps up to the microphone, what should it have to say? Love one another? Do unto others as you would have done to you. You might not believe in God, but He certainly believes in you. These are all some of the messages I've heard in recent times. This chapter of Acts really takes us to to launch day for the church of Jesus Christ. And at its core is the message of God's mission. And what a helpful thing for us to be clear on. Acts chapter 2 is the day that the disciples have been waiting for. If you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, um, Jesus has told them, go back to Jerusalem, wait there, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and He's going to give you power to be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And this is the day, it's finally come. And I don't know if any of them were quite braced for what happened, but just as they had been throughout the 10 days since Jesus ascended into heaven, here in verse 1, we're told, again, the disciples are all together in one place. They are at one, just like Jesus told them to do. Jesus promised He would send the Holy Spirit, and here the Spirit comes. And Luke, who writes this book of Acts, he records 
what happens on this day in terms of the disciples' senses. So, do you see this? First of all, they hear something, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's verse 2. And there are examples of this elsewhere in the Scriptures. You go back to the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, he prays that these dead bones would have life. And it is the breath of God that comes from the four winds that gives life to those dead bones. And we've been singing, haven't we? Holy Spirit, living breath of God, like a mighty wind from heaven, the Holy Spirit comes. They hear something. Then they see something, don't they? Verse 3, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And very often in the Bible, the presence of God appears to, to His people as fire. Uh, think of Moses at the burning bush. God appears as fire. And the tongues that fall upon them are, are an indicator of what this, what this baptism with the Spirit is going to produce in them. Because they heard something, they saw something, and then they said something. They spoke the presence of the Spirit caused them to speak in other tongues. And that word tongue is actually really just an old-fashioned word for language. They spoke in other languages. And all of them, all 120 of them, they did this. And Luke is clear, isn't he? This isn't some natural ability that they had lying dormant waiting to be woken up. This is the Spirit who enables them to speak in this miraculous way. But it's not really clear why it's significant until some other people get involved. The disciples move outdoors, and other people hear the commotion. Luke told us this is the day of Pentecost, a Jewish festival, one of the main festivals where Jews would make a, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate. And this explains why there is such a diversity of people there. Um, because Nathan read them so well, I won't try and read that list of 15 people groups that are there. And if you were to, to trace it out on the map, you can see that Luke is saying people came from every direction, from every point of the compass. They had, they had descended on Jerusalem, almost as, if, almost as if these Jews, which had been scattered through the land, God was bringing them back together, back to Himself. They come to this one source, this place where the Holy Spirit has descended, and each one of them, wherever they're from, they hear them speak to them in their own language. Some skeptics have wondered, why would they have gathered round in such numbers? I mean, by the end, there's 3,000 people converted. Why would all these people have gathered round? And I was just thinking about, there is actually something that makes sense about this. I mean, imagine if I had gone away on holiday, say I had gone to some far-flung place like the south of England, and I heard someone in the street, and they started to speak saying, fit like Abdi, we can't hardly believe I think fit the Lord has deemed for was, we can't help but worship him. I would go over and listen to that guy, because that's how people speak where I'm from, not how they speak in the south of England. I'm going to go and listen to this guy. And exactly the same thing happens for these 15 people groups. 
They hear their own regional tongue being spoken, and they go over to hear what is going on. The crowd builds. They realize something extraordinary is going on here, and they ask the question, verse 12, what does this mean? Some wonder if the disciples might be drunk, and Peter simply says, come now. It's only nine o'clock. The Spirit here is bringing in a new era, and it's this question, what does this mean, that, that provides Peter with his opening to explain what's going on. Now, Peter's sermon runs from verse 14 through to verse 36. And in the course of this sermon, he's going to bring in three Old Testament passages to help us understand why it's so significant. And straight away, he points them to the prophet Joel, who specifically foretold this day of Pentecost. We see this verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So when Joel spoke, and this is quoted from Joel 2, this is the day that Joel had in mind. And really, we are, have, what we have confirmed here is indeed the Holy Spirit brings a new era. All we can do is quickly look at these main points. Peter does a little bit of interpreting in quoting the text. Look at verse 17. He says, in the last days it shall be. I think the original says something like, it will come to pass afterwards. Well, Peter is, is quickly explaining, here's what's meant by afterwards. In the last days, it shall be that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. He tells us that these remarkable happenings are the dawning of a new era, the last days. The promise of Joel 2 was that the Holy Spirit would be poured out and that phrase poured out comes up a few times in this passage, and it, it carries the idea of a deluge of water being gushed out onto dry, parched land. That's the kind of image here. The Holy Spirit is poured out into this dry deadness in order to bring life. That's what God's doing. This isn't something manufactured. And in those days, those last days, they will hear sons and daughters prophesy. And you see that that's going to expand in this new era. Not only sons and daughters prophesying, verse 17, young men and old men, people of different status, servants, male and female. This is the era of the Holy Spirit of God, just as Jesus had promised. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Peter goes on. He keeps quoting Joel 2, verse 19. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. This is the significance of these last days that Peter says have dawned. As far as the Bible speaks about it, they are the days that precede the judgment of God. The day of the Lord is this, is this day spoken of very often in the Bible, this day of judgment. And so it's that bloody, that fiery vapor of smoke language that's used that speaks of God's coming judgment. In fact, if I was to take you back to the day on which Jesus was crucified, 
Our eye is so often drawn to the physical pain of the man on the cross. Slowly there, he suffocates to death. It's a horrible scene. But actually, something more severe is taking place. You read in the gospel accounts, the sun was turned to darkness. Exactly the sort of language that is used here, verse 20. You see, here Joel's message is, when God pours out His Spirit, know that the last days have come and that God's judgment is on the way. God's judgment fell on Jesus. The sun was turned black. The earth quaked. There's something like, this picture is that when God's judgment comes, something of the, the very fabric of the universe begins to quake. That's the day that's coming. But never miss this. Joel's message is a message of hope. Look where it ends in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here, what Peter has done, he's given this crowd the big picture of what's going on. He says, God's timetable is moving along. We're into the last days now. That's what this coming of the Spirit proves. And it means God's judgment is coming. But we're yet to be told where Jesus fits into all of this. And that's what Peter shows us next. So he says, first of all, the Holy Spirit brings the dawning of a new era. But then he tells them, you cannot understand the world without Jesus. You cannot understand the world without Jesus. It's actually from verse 22 where Peter's own message uh, begins. And I want you to note that the central theme of Peter's message is not the work of the Holy Spirit. His central theme is all about Jesus Christ from start to finish. That is all Peter wants to talk about with them. Men of Israel hear these words, verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth. That's his theme that's his theme. And he's not going to shift from Jesus as the centerpiece of the, of the message of God's mission. He's not going to shift there until he's finished. Peter understands that any amazement or awe that the crowd might have regarding the amazing signs that have taken place in front of them, if it is not accompanied with a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, then it's not worth very much. So there's a lot we could cover here. Let me walk you through Peter's message. Point number one, Jesus of Nazareth was clearly God's man. Point number one, Jesus of Nazareth was clearly God's man. That's what he says. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst this is so very helpful for understanding the place of the miraculous in the life of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter says, all of that is to testify to his identity. All of this is to confirm that the things he said are reliable and true. And those signs and wonders would fulfill that same function in the apostles as we read through this book of Acts. And notice that Peter says to the crowd, this is undeniable. 
In fact, he says, as you yourselves know, as you yourselves know these things happened. Jesus of Nazareth was clearly God's man. Point number two, Jesus was crucified and killed. This is the undeniable story of this man's violent death. Notice that uh, Peter is not afraid in verse 23 to lay the blame for the death of Christ right at the door of those who hear him. I mean, this isn't timid Peter anymore, is it? He's saying, this Jesus delivered up, uh, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He may have in mind the Jewish leadership, may have in mind the Roman participation in the death of Jesus, but he lays it right at the heart of these ordinary folks who were there. But he says there's a lot more going on than that. Not just that uh, the people wanted him killed. He says Jesus' crucifixion and death were according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, even though you crucified and killed him, all of this is working to God's bigger plan. His plan is being fulfilled even through the wicked deeds of wicked men. So Jesus is clearly God's man. Jesus is crucified and died. Jesus was raised from the dead is point number three. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter takes time here. He wants to show the crowd that Jesus of Nazareth had to be raised from the dead. Not just a, well, this was an unexpected and isn't that nice. He had to be raised from the dead. And he does so by quoting from Psalm 16. This is the second Bible reference he goes to. Psalm 16 was written by King David. It's a psalm that expresses trust and confidence in the Lord. But there's something confusing as you read through the psalm. Because David speaks, and you have it here in verse 26, he speaks of this, his flesh dwelling in hope. Well, what is that hope? It's the assurance of verse 27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. And Hades is, is literally the, the place of the dead. It's where dead people go. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, Peter's logic is simple here. You can be sure that when David spoke about God's Holy One not seeing corruption, that he wasn't speaking about himself. And do you know why we can be so sure? Because just down the road here is David's tomb. And he has literally rotted away to dust. So he wasn't speaking about himself. His body has been left in the grave. It has seen corruption. So if that's the case, then who was David writing about? Look at what Peter says in verse 30. David being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David is given this insight to see that the Holy One was the promised descendant who would reign forever. And so, what would be the mark of God's anointed? 
not abandoned to the grave. His body won't see corruption like everyone else who's been put in the ground. In other words, if Jesus is the Messiah, he has to be raised from the dead. This prophecy of David demands it. And that's exactly what the apostles are there to testify to. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, we have seen Jesus was God's man. He was crucified and he died. He was raised from the dead. Peter's fourth point, Jesus has been exalted to heaven at the right hand of God. Peter quickly nips back to the Old Testament again, Psalm 110. Uh, You see this in verse 34 and 35, this time to prove that the Messiah would be exalted to the highest place, and that what they have just seen take place on the day of Pentecost confirms that this Jesus has really ascended to sit on the throne in heaven, to the place of authority where He's received this promise of the Spirit from the Father, and He has poured it out on us. Now, in some ways, that's a simple outline, isn't it, that Peter speaks of? He speaks about the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to anyone who will listen, therefore, point number five, he is Lord and he is Savior. That's the simplicity of his message. Now, I mean, it's more complicated than I could put together, but it's, this is his message. The facts of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and saying, therefore, He is Lord. He is the promised Savior. But look at how Peter ends this. He says, therefore, He's Lord and Savior, and you crucified Him. You see the punch in his message? He's gone to all these lengths to show Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah that you've been looking for, that you've been told to look for since you were a wee bairn, and now you crucified him. It's the worst possible news that these people could hear. Think about it. This new era has dawned that tells us the judgment of God is coming, and now we have just learned that we have rejected God and we have murdered His Son. You think they're looking forward to God's judgment now? They treated Him as though He was wicked. They called for His murder on a Roman cross, and they even taunted Him as He suffocated and died on the cross. How do you think God will deal with such when He comes in His judgment? And it's no wonder that Luke records for us in verse 37, when they heard this, what? They were cut to the heart. They were burdened with their guilt as they stood before God. They felt the weight of it in a way that they had never felt it before. And they asked their second question to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we have to do? You cannot understand the world without Jesus. 
God tells us that His Son, Jesus Christ, is the central figure in all of history. And I use that word history deliberately, because that's Peter's conviction, isn't it? Jesus of Nazareth, a real man who lived and breathed, who walked the streets of Judea and Galilee in the first century, that man, God worked miracles through him. God planned his death. God raised him up. God exalted him into heaven. God has made him Lord and Christ. And if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. It's maybe like going to the Albert Hall to, to listen to, to go to one of the proms concerts that's on at the moment. And uh, you sit through the whole concert with earplugs in. You know, you see the setting and how magnificent it is. You're even impressed at the seeming discipline of the orchestra that's all come together. But you are unable to grasp the reason for all of this because you've got your ears plugged. You've missed the most beautiful thing, the music. Friends, without Jesus, we might marvel at this world, might be impressed with lots of things in it, But if you're deaf to God, you miss the reason for all of it. You can't understand it without Jesus Christ. And it's worse than that, isn't it? Because actually, we reject Jesus. We may have heard the stories. We may even have read the Gospels. And so often we think, there is nothing about this man for me to be concerned with. Don't see anything that warrants our attention. His death on the cross all sounds so foolish to me. And so we turn our backs on Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. And there's a sense in which actually we are, in rejecting Jesus as spiritually culpable as these thousands of Jews in AD 33 hearing this message for the first time. God's judgment is coming, and we have despised His Son. Do you see yourself like that? Because you need to. This is the starting point for all of it. This application that Peter is going to come into is only there for those who are able to say, I am cut to the heart by this news. What must I do? That question the crowd asks becomes the most important question of all what must I do? And here we learn you can't understand Jesus and not respond to Jesus. You cannot understand who Jesus is and not respond. It would be crazy for the crowd at this point to walk away and say, well, I learned a lot today. Never heard it put like that before. It's deeper than that, isn't it? What shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when Peter was quoting from Joel 2, warning of the day of the Lord, what was the hope? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what does Peter tell them to do here? He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Call on the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he, he, he picks up on that language of Joel 2. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. That's his call here too, isn't it? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is not a collective thing. It comes down to each individual to respond in this way, to repent. That is literally to change your mind, to turn away from rejecting Jesus to instead embracing Jesus and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the name of the Lord. Call upon him and you'll be saved. And to all who do that, they receive the blessings of belonging to Jesus, forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within. It's interesting here, this uh, use of the word uh, baptism. Here, we're told the way that they showed uh, that they had this forgiveness of sins is that they were baptized, they were literally immersed in water. The way Peter phrases this, though, we could be tempted to think that, well, actually, it's the act of baptism itself that brings forgiveness. Maybe there's something in the water that washes away our sins or something like that. But that is to misunderstand baptism. Because the testimony of the rest of the New Testament is that baptism takes place in response to first having faith in Jesus Christ. So, why does Peter word it like this? Well, because actually it's quite an effective shorthand. Let me give you an example. If a, if a young man comes to me for counsel about relationships, uh, which, which are days you dread, by the way, if a young man comes to you for counsel for relationships, and I say to him, you just need to get a ring on our finger which is usually the answer, gents. You just need to get that ring on her finger. He knows that I'm saying more than, oh, she really likes jewelry. He knows I'm saying more than that, doesn't he? Because I'm saying, you want to marry her. The ring represents a whole raft of things. It represents marriage. It represents the promise. It represents the covenant that has uh, been put in place between husband and wife. It represents a commitment to faithfulness. And all of that by simply saying, you need to get a ring on her finger. The ring represents more than itself. And so with baptism, it represents belonging to Jesus Christ into the water submerged. The old self is dead with Christ, up out of the water, raised to newness of life with Jesus. And this is how Christians in the New Testament bore witness to their repentance and faith in Jesus. And sometime in the 20th century, it became common for Christians recognizing that baptism doesn't save them. That is still very much the case but it lead, has led to a downplaying of baptism to such an extent that it has become an optional response to Jesus. There's no sense of that here in Peter's mind. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews wanted to declare that they trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, and so they were baptized, however humiliating that must have been for them in their Jewish context. What could be more natural than followers of Jesus 
confirming their allegiance to Jesus in the way that Jesus has commanded. And that challenge comes out to all of us. Whatever age or stage you may be at, if you haven't done this, or if you've put it off, or if you feel that it's now too late for you, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's not too late to do what the Lord commands today. Well, the day of Pentecost was a landmark day in world history, not just church history, because in a sense, the New Testament church was born. And it launched with a clear declaration of the message of God's mission. So let me go back to my first question. When the church steps into the spotlight and it stands up to the microphone, what does the church have to say? The church says, let me talk to you about Jesus Christ, about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and how all of this confirms that he is God come to rescue you from your sins. You need to believe in him. You need to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus. Trust that he's your rescuer, and you will find forgiveness of sins. You too will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be part of the people of God. This is the message that God used to save 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, and it remains the only message that can save anyone today. Friends, let's not seek a platform to exalt anyone else, to emphasize any other message, for the message of God's mission is entirely focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Let's renew our commitment to that focus in the days that lie before us. Amen.